Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, March 21st, 2023. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Christine Rosen is out today. Uh, and so we have, uh, as usual, uh, Washington Commentary Columnist and American Enterprise Institute Senior Fellow, Matthew Cottonetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. Yesterday, we were speculating about what it could, what could Ron DeSantis say as the Trump people and Trump's acolytes were putting pressure on him to denounce the uh, potential indictment of Trump by the Manhattan District Attorney. And just a couple hours after we finished taping the podcast, DeSantis said something and because for the last month, maybe not quite the month, but let's say we've been we've been pretty critical of DeSantis's communications strategy as and not also policy, but also his decision to emphasize the idea that we did not have a national interest in in the Ukrainians prevailing in Ukraine. Um, that um, I was very surprised by how adept and um clever his approach to talking about trump yesterday was and so much so that uh while i anticipated various types of responses from him i did not anticipate that he was going to go where i think common sense dictated that he went this is how far corkscrewed we've gotten thinking about trump that um, he he said that the uh, prosecutor, uh, Alvin Bragg, was a Soros-funded guy who should really be going after crime in New York City and not political uh, prosecutions. But then, Matt, he took a very interesting turn, wouldn't right. you say? I would. I mean, yeah, he said, uh, quote, I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star or to secure silence over some type some type of alleged affair. I just can't speak to that. But what I can speak to is that you have a prosecutor who is ignoring crimes happening every single day in his jurisdiction, yada, 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 the stuff that we have been talking about, the, the weaknesses in Alvin Bragg's case. But the key sentence is, I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star or to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. And he he had another line where he basically uh, repeated uh, that sentiment. Um, look, I, it definitely uh, is the closest DeSantis has come to directly attacking Trump. Um, and it definitely triggered Trump. And we can say that uh, because Trump, Trump viewed it as an attack because a few um, hours later, Trump posted on Truth Social, quote, Ron DeSanctimonious will probably find out about, all caps, false accusations and fake stories sometime in the future as he gets older, wiser, and better known when he's unfairly and illegally attacked by a woman, even classmates that are, quote, underaged, close quote, and then parens, or possibly a man. I'm sure he will want to fight these misfits just like I do. So we now have uh, an engagement between DeSantis and Trump. DeSantis kind of uh, you know, attacking I, uh, gently, I think, quest raising questions about Donald Trump's character. I mean, longstanding questions, or actually those questions have all been answered, but he's bringing up the issue. And then just Trump in 
typical fashion, going completely nuclear <laughs> and suggesting that sometime soon uh, classmates who are underage or male may come and accuse DeSantis of impropriety. Um, I don't think it's gentle. Really? And I think what's interesting about it, we can get to the Trump response because it's kind of a Rube Goldberg machine, Trump's response. I don't think it helps him, but uh, as a as a counterpunch or even as a punch. But what he is doing here is reminding people in small bore why Trump is a problem. And Republicans, for some reason, got it into their heads after he survived the Access Hollywood tape that he was bulletproof on subjects of his personal misbehavior. And that was a foolish supposition on their part, because while it is true that the Trump base uh, decided that they were in for a penny and for a pound and they didn't care whatever he had done, and the only reason anybody would bring it up was to bring him down, which is a firm version of bringing down everybody who voted for him, um, he got 46% of the vote. In 2016, he got 46% of the vote in 2020. Uh, people who didn't vote for him, who might otherwise have voted for him, a great number of them did not vote for him because of his personal misbehavior. That was then reflected in his inconstancy, his nastiness, all kinds of policy things that happened in 2020 in relation to COVID that, you know, neutralized whatever advantages he may have had or the ability that he might have had to pull over a whole bunch of people to his side. Reminding people, even though you don't have to remind people that that's who Trump is and that what we're dealing with here is the fallout from his own personal behavior behavior that no politician before him could ever have survived it's a way of reminding that 60 percent or 65 percent of republican voters who are open to voting for somebody else why they are open to voting for somebody else and why they might still want to vote for somebody else because we're going, you know, basically the party is uh, preparing to possibly get back into bed uh, with the guy who then, you know, cheats on you with Stormy Daniels. I, I just want to say about what DeSantis said, I, I sort of agree that it's not gentle, but it's deliberately measured in that he doesn't mention Trump, the man himself. Um, and DeSantis has done this before uh, when he was asked about what he thought of Trump's criticisms of him, DeSantis, when when Trump was was starting to sort of yell at him from the sidelines. Um, DeSantis said, well, there's a lot of noise out there, uh, you know, and I, I, I get more criticism than any governor in the country. And I but I'm focused on results. That's kind of what he was saying here, too. Um, I think he did even talk about I have problems to 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 deal with in Florida here. I think it's clever not to mention Trump by name in a sense, um, because this way he's not defining himself or the race in response to Trump, even though th those are the questions that, that come at him. But it can't go on forever. 
um, at at some point he has to he has to take him on more frontally. Yeah, I mean, because he's not winning. You know, to, right. DeSantis is acting like he's the front runner in the race. In some ways, Trump is acting as though DeSantis is the front runner in the race. But DeSantis is not the front runner in the race. The polls show Donald Trump is leading this Republican presidential campaign. And when you have a front runner, the job of the people who are trying to become the front runner is to attack the front runner. <laughs> and that hasn't happened yet. Now, look, we're early. It's March 21 when we're having this discussion. Um, the first debate is not until August. At some point, DeSantis is going to have to say, Donald Trump is a loser. He lost for exactly the reasons John points out, which is uh, many Amer- millions of Americans, including, most importantly, millions of independent voters, have a real aversion to this man's personality and character. And so the party needs to move on. But that's not what he said yesterday. He kind of, you know, he made, he referenced Trump's inappropriate behavior. um, And then he focused on Alvin Bragg. And it's, I think, a sign of the dilemma that Republican candidates have, which is, sure, all of these questions about Trump's personality and character will be huge issues in the general election. But in the Republican primary, especially closed primaries, which, by the way, the Trump people are working behind the scenes to ensure most primaries are, in closed primaries, they're not going to have much of an effect because Republicans in the main are convinced that no matter what you say about Donald Trump, it doesn't matter because he is the only person who can fight back against the liberal forces uh, insidiously working from within to undermine our country. I agree with you that he is going to have to do more as an initial or opening salvo. Sure. This was pretty good uh, because of course it gives him runway. You know, he didn't, he didn't drop, you know, he didn't (laughs) didn't surrender. Yeah. Either surrendered nor, nor did he drop a huge bomb. Right. He was like, don't think that I am not prepared to say what is necessary. I am not going to associate myself with the idea that Donald Trump is a martyr if he is getting prosecuted for uh, for his outrageous and unseemly personal behavior. The prosecution may be bad. It's part of a it's part of a uh, tapestry of bad prosecutorial behavior that that comes from this. Um, uh, corrupt or rotten root, but I'm not defending this guy because he's a scumbag. And that's where I did not, that's what I didn't see coming because almost no Republican has gone there. If you think about it, Again, since the Access Hollywood tapes failure to take him down, when Mitch McConnell talks about what it is he doesn't like about Donald Trump, if he says so obliquely, if even Kevin McCarthy, on the rare occasions that he has separated himself from Trump, since the Republicans in the Senate who who fell and crashed and burned because they were his antagonists, Roger Wicker, uh, I'm blocking on uh, uh, Jeff Flake and Bob Corker, right? Not Roger Wicker. Yeah, Roger Wicker's still there. Yes, Bob Corker, (laughs) 
Jeff Flake, John McCain. I mean, obviously didn't crash and burn. He 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 died. But um, the the after the retribution that he exacted upon them for their heterodoxy, um, all criticisms of Trump, if there is, are are have been extremely oblique, and none of them have engaged his personal conduct and his personal conduct is the issue the issue isn't he's got a bad foreign policy or you know he didn't really you know he 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 mishandled covid though i think that that might be an issue that will come at him in a weird way from the right like desantis will say i didn't let these guys destroy the lives of floridians and you let them destroy everybody you know you let them interfere with the lives of everybody else in america that's not exactly where you would where one expected Trump's criticism of Trump to go. If you were thinking about what was going to happen after the election in 2020, if you ran again, you would have thought that it would be, you know, oh, you know, it would only come from the left saying that he was responsible for COVID or something like that. The right criticism is that he surrendered the country to Fauci, to the rule of Fauci. And of course, who can make that case better than DeSantis, who did not? Right. My point is he needs to make that case. And right. you, you, you're you're correct. He has runway, but the runway is getting shorter. That's my that's my point. Yeah. You know, the runway will end before you know it. Uh, if you, yeah. And so at some point um, you, you're going to have to engage. You can you can if you're DeSantis, you can engage on the virus. Uh, you can engage on the personal behavior. And I will. It's interesting DeSantis's uh, friend and ally, um, Chip Roy of Texas, who's a major figure in the Freedom Caucus in the House and who preemptively endorsed DeSantis last week. I mean, DeSantis isn't even in the race for president, but Chip Roy said it's time for Ron DeSantis to be president. Roy gave an interview yesterday where he also raised uh, the hush money and porn star, uh, you know, rhetorical combo, which suggests that in private conversations um inside the DeSantis camp they've decided that this is something that they're going to continue to bring up um especially in the indictment um my my argument is um I, I don't know how I don't know how effective that will be in a Republican audience one and two you're going to have to bring it directly because you see what Trump is capable of doing on his own well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about his response to DeSantis. So, you know, this is as comically like gangster parody-ish as Trump has ever been, this true social statement, because it sounds like that's a good reputation you have there, governor. Be a pity if something was to happen to it. You know, you better pay me hush money or I'm going to destroy you. Here's the problem. How does he phrase it in his gangsterist way? He says, you too may deal with unjust, unfair, and untrue accusations like this and this and this. He has already stipulated that the things that they're going to come at DeSantis for aren't true. Like, when he said uh, Ted Cruz's dad might either be the Zodiac killer or Kennedy's assassin... He didn't say Ted Cruz is really being treated very unfairly because people are saying that his father killed JFK. 
He was saying Ted Cruz's father killed JFK. He has opened this topic up by saying, poor DeSantis, you're going to learn what it's like to get unfairly accused. And DeSantis can now say, if Trump raises it, you said that any such accusations would be unfair, Mr. President. Uh, what's the deal, buddy? I don't know. Maybe I'm tal- being too Talmudic about this. But, you know, what you should say is people like you, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Some stuff is, may be coming at you and you're going to have to deal with. You do get the sense from Trump's tweets over the last several days that uh, he's a little bit stressed, right? I mean, this this whole controversy kicked off with Trump tweeting over the weekend that he was about to be arrested on Tuesday, March 21st, which is today, and he's not going to be arrested today. So once again, Trump says something without evidence that does not tr- prove to be the case. And now in response to DeSantis's, very, you know, again, very, I think, elliptical criticism, he goes completely nuclear, so nuclear that he's not thinking, as you say, John, about what he's actually saying, because that is true. He could now DeSantis. He's given DeSantis the playbook to respond mm-hmm. to Trump's yeah. own attacks. When one of Trump's underlings comes out with an accuser, DeSantis will just say yeah. it's false. It's false. And it's a smear job. And, you know, part of what makes Trump go so, so nuclear here is the fact that DeSantis's response was elliptical. He didn't mention Trump's name, and that's got to drive him crazy. He's just, he's he's talking about him as if as if he's a footnote to the question of Alvin Bragg and the question of conduct generally. That's a good point. I, I think one last thing: if we are to believe the argument that the arrest and the indictment and everything, if they happen, will help Trump, here's the one militating factor against that argument and that's what matt you just alluded to which is trump's own behavior he is not acting like come at me bro like i'm gonna be you know you're you're doing me a favor because i am going to you know set the country on fire in my and you're gonna you know i'm gonna mow you down he is acting the way a non-crazy person acts with the impending possibility of a gigantic national humiliation or just the horror of actually going through the process of being processed as a criminal in the United States. And there is a process and he will get uh, very much, it would appear on the lightest end of what that spectrum could be. He will likely not be perp walked. He will likely be allowed to surrender out of the view of everybody. You know, there probably won't be a mugshot. There'll be all kinds of things that happen to everybody else that will not happen to him, but enough is going to happen to him. And it will be the most famous arrest since OJ Simpson, I believe, right. Which was almost 30 years ago. Uh, and he doesn't want it to happen. Yeah, I mean, this is the point uh, of uh, Alexander Burns' very good uh, piece in Politico um, uh, headline, Stop Overthinking It, an Indictment Would Be Bad for Trump. 
And, um, uh, you know, it, uh, I, I think there's something very much to it, but we can overread this and um, <clears throat> we can always fall back on the Trump superpower. Uh, but at the end of the day, he's a man in his seventies. He has, he has avoided this situation his entire life, his entire life. Trump has been playing fast and loose with the law. He's always, Trump always walks up to the edge. He peers over the edge. He dangles his foot over the edge. You know, uh, he's like the Joker in the, in the scene. And uh, Jack Nicholson is the Joker in 1989. He's up on the scaffolding and he's kind of playing on just on the edge. Right. And uh, he's never fallen off. Uh, This would be the first time regardless of the merits of the case, this would be the first time he's, he is put into a situation where the law has caught up to him. And, and one, you don't know his, the effect of that on his psyche, which maybe we're kind of seeing, I mean, you know, obviously judging Trump's psyche is a, I mean, it would take teams of scientists working around the clock to, to figure that out for years. Um, But, but also just the plain fact of voters perceptions, like, Oh gosh, like we have to go through this. And then if it happens, if he's indicted for something else, we have to go through this again. I do think that wears down uh, people's confidence. Um, also, it would it would have a kind of a psychological effect on people's perceptions of his invulnerability because he will no longer be invulnerable. And to go to the point about his own reaction to this, and just to try to take it up, deal with it from the human angle, clearly his relations with his children are not what they once were. Ivanka seems to be keeping herself very much at arm's distance from him. His son is now 17. You know, he was 12 or 13 or he was, how old, how old was he in 20, 2016? I mean, he, he so if you see, he was 11. Um, You know, his wife is now going through, <clears throat> is having to go through the same personal tribulations uh, in relation to her husband's behavior in public that she had to in 2016. Can't be a comfortable place to be, even if you're as solipsistic and you know and and ego driven, and even if your your family thinks that you're being hard done and that you're a martyr and all of that. Nonetheless, you know it's a very lonely place that he's in and you know when your comfort is the way that you know roger stone is screaming and that's all you really have or you know nick fuentes or something like that even for trump that's got to be pretty cold comfort at a at a moment of very high stakes and very you know emotionally very jangling you know he's, yeah. he's totally exposed in a way that he has not been exposed. This is every this is every reason that he didn't run for office before. You know, I mean, he had to make a very painful decision in weird ways in 2015 to actually run for office because he had spent so much time and money buying the silence of so many people over the course of the years. Um and you would only buy silence from people over the course of years if you were actually worried about your reputation. Yeah, though remember, he did kind of finally take the plunge out of spite because Barack Obama made fun of him yeah. 
at the right. White House correspondence center. Yeah. So that suggests it could work the opposite and, way. And of course, he had Hillary. He had three months of Hillary Clinton's reputation going into the trash heap right. because of the server issues and her disastrous handling of them, which really started in March of 2015. And his animal cunning said, this may be the one time in my life I can actually seriously make a bid for the presidency if she's my rival because she is, you know, the opposite of Teflon. It's all sticking to her. And that was the genius of his decision to run. And I don't think he really has that now, you know, aside from not having it now and you can't, you know, we can't replicate circumstances like that. It's just, it's a hard place to be, even if you're, you know, you have no interest in having the remotest kind of empathy for, for, um, you know, for, for him. But on the other hand, where does he sort of get his nourishment, his, his, I hesitate to use the word spiritual, but, but, but he still can go and uh, hold something like a rally and have all his fans out there screaming his name. He might, he he goes to CPAC. Um, He's still the leader of something and that of a movement. And that means something to him. Okay. But let's talk about that for two minutes. Uh, he will be a plaintiff, and not plaintiff. What? That's stupid. He'll be a defendant in a felony criminal proceeding. Every word that comes out of his mouth is actionable and usable in a court of law against him. This is one of the reasons that when people get arrested or they are on trial, they say nothing ever. He cannot be freewheeling. He can get himself two more years in prison if he says the wrong thing, if he attacks the judge, if he says something, you know, if he, whatever, he, he does not have the leeway. He's muzzled. He had, he will be muzzled. Or if he's not muzzled, he could, blow himself up <laughs> muzzled, muzzled and trump are two yeah. words i don't often put together you know look what uh, for the first test of this may be uh on uh saturday when he holds a, a rally in texas uh, which his campaign has announced and we can judge by the nature of that rally and by his speech where he's uh going to go is uh, one thing that i think has helped trump um uh, over the past couple months is uh, he has listened to kind of the professional Republican campaign staffers who are driving his campaign. And he has been releasing these policy documents and videos and um, his speeches have focused on policy. He's focused on retail politics, showing up at the fast food joint, answering questions and uh, after his speech in Iowa. If the rally uh, coming up in Texas is just the grievance show, and goes spins off, you know, um, into a ditch. Uh, that will be a sign that he that the new discipline he's exhibited uh, was, as usual, very short lived, and that could hurt him down the road. But um, we just don't we just don't know. I mean, I will say, you know, 
you did mention the family. Melania's role has been very interesting over the past six months because she is not a visible part of this campaign. And you've got to imagine that is hindering Trump. And also, you know, in terms of losing allies, as you were said, we forget uh, he no longer has diamond. It just has silk. Uh, It's just not the same. No diamond. And um, I suspect that the evangelicals whose fealty he won and, 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 and continued to claim, I don't know that that is a hundred percent. I don't know what you you know, like I'm losing, I'm losing unconditional. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they have other places to go now, including DeSantis or others who speak in faith-based terms. And, um, you know, it's one thing when the sex stuff is actually off the, is out of the discussion, right? So it's at, so access Hollywood and he, uh, survived it by saying, they're just trying to destroy me so they can, you know, put Hillary Clinton in. That would be much worse than me. Right. So do they really want to be in the forefront of defending his adultery and, uh, and whom he was adulterous with and his behavior in an adulterous fashion and the rehearsals that will be made once this indictment is secured of other behaviors that are comparable to this behavior that may not come up in the court of law, but will come up in, you know, uh, reminders as some of these uh, TikToks about the, uh, I don't mean the TikTok video, I mean TikTok in the journalistic sense, these sort of like how the Stormy Daniels story happened and I had completely forgotten that this was actually kicked into high gear by a different affair Karen uh, that 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 uh, the National Choir did catch and kill, and that that reignited Stormy Daniels saying, "Well, if you're going to pay her off, you better pay me off too." You didn't pay me enough to keep silent, even if I signed an NDA. And there's other stuff that you mentioned yesterday, Matt, that there is still a civil proceeding against him by the sex writer E. Jean Carroll, who claims that he um, uh, molested her at Bergdorf Goodman um, uh, in in somewhere. Anyway, so I don't know that they're going to want to, you know, be like the frontline troops here. They could they can leave it to Nick Fuentes and you know whatever remains of the proud boys and the oath keepers after after january 6th i mean they don't they don't have to be his his blocking tackles anymore and they may not want to be i think that's fair because i think uh when you make a decision like that uh to support someone or not support someone and they and you're and the decision is informed by uh sense of morality and and um and uh, propriety and whatever else it's not a sort of clean calculation. You hit a threshold that you for and for some reason you say it's enough. You don't. Right. It's not. You don't have to say. Well, this was one thing because, uh, you know, it 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 seemed to be more innocent. And there's, it, you you can just sort of get exhausted and 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 you find yourself uncomfortable with it. And remember, it was transactional with 
with the right in over the course of 2016, he essentially went to them and said, okay, I'm not going to BS you. You know, I'm not one of you. What do you want? What do you need? Tell me what you need. Tell me what it is that I got to do for you. And they told him and he said, okay. And therefore they had a deal. I don't know what he can give them now. They, they had, they had an ask and he fulfilled their ask. Yeah. I mean, and there was a lot of suspicion about him among, uh, the Christian right uh, uh, during the primary. And a lot of the spokesmen for the Christian right backed Ted Cruz uh, for precisely this reason, doubts about Trump's character. When Trump won the nomination, though, um, the evangelicals moved to support him um, based on their belief that America is at a precipice. And uh, they stuck with him uh, throughout the presidency into the 2020 re-election campaign. But, uh, you know, as you say, John, there's a lot of reporting now. Evangelical leaders are uh, looking elsewhere. Uh, Some are sticking with Trump. Others are not. Um, uh, And I think the the bottom line is they need to be given an alternative. At some point, (laughs) at some point, the vectors of this campaign need to change uh, if Donald Trump is not going to be the Republican nominee for president. At some point, the scissors that I was mentioning the other day that show Trump going up since January 15th and DeSantis going down, they need to change uh, direction if DeSantis is going to have hope of actually being the front runner. Uh, and, or uh, a third candidate by August, September needs to emerge as, an, as a plausible alternative. And um, maybe this is a good segue because uh, one of the candidates gunning for that um, role of the third uh, person who emerges, Nikki Haley, had, I think, a very strong op-ed in the Wall Street Journal today on um, Chinese dictator Xi Jinping's summit in Moscow with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Go ahead. Well, make uh, the segue. You I make. I just. I thought I just did. Yeah. No. No. I. So. Uh, I'll continue the segue. So uh, we have, you know, as we're speaking, she uh, uh, is in the second day of his meeting with Putin. She um, uh, visits Russia. The first thing he says, according to the, this is a Guardian report. He says Xi Jinping said China was ready with Russia, quote, to stand guard over the world order based on international law. We see the Xi visit in the context of the recent Chinese uh, brokered deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, we find that China is clearly making the move to uh, essentially become the guarantor of international security, which is a role that the United States has played since the end of the Second World War 78 years ago. Um, if China moves, it continues on this path with uh, Xi basically um, promoting a ceasefire between Russia and uh, Ukraine. If he's successful in that, um, you know, China has gone a long way to displacing the United States as the main actor on the world stage. This is why the stakes of this summit are so high. And I think Haley's point, um, which is captured in the headline to her article in today's Wall Street Journal, China wins if Russia conquers Ukraine, is exactly right. Um, You know, she writes, Beijing has set its sights on overtaking the U.S. militarily, economically and culturally. Um, Mr. Xi is in Moscow because supporting Mr. Putin advances his dark vision. He wants Russia to conquer Ukraine so it's easier for China to invade Taiwan. He wants Russia to threaten the rest of Europe because it draws America's attention from Asia. 
Uh, China loses, she goes on, if Ukraine wins. And I think this is obviously a, another subtle attack that's apparently what happened to, you know, the Republican, as Mike Pence puts it, broad shoulder leadership. You know, Republicans aren't afraid to take on the tough question. We have all these subtle attacks, but nonetheless, in her subtle attack on Ron DeSantis, she's saying that the people who say that Ukraine is a distraction from the real enemy, China, get it backward. Ukraine is actually right now the central front. Let's put it that way. The central front in our competition with China. And whoever wins there will have, I think, an edge leading to the next stage of competition. This is obviously an argument that we've been advancing here for, you know, weeks, if not longer, particularly since uh, Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, gave this pretty outrageous and outlandish speech at the Heritage Foundation, in which he not only said that we were taking our eye off the, the ball, but actually said we need to cut off Ukraine entirely because apparently we can't walk and chew gum at the same time. Like we can't help Ukraine and face down China. It's either one or the other. And when people start making arguments like that, it's time to like hold on to your wallet because they're 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 trying to con you. You know, it's a three-card Monty game that they're playing with you. The argument's very basic, and I suppose it could be wrong, but it is what Haley, you know, lays out, which is that um, uh, the West's resolve in retarding an effort to take over another sovereign country uh, and success therein is the way to prevent future efforts of this sort anywhere. And there is only one place right now on Earth where we see a potential comparable circumstance, and that is China with Taiwan. I mean, maybe you could see it in, you know, South Sudan and Sudan, or you could see it in, you know, I don't know, Uruguay and Paraguay. I mean, but but those are not first-line defenses. Uh, Taiwan is a, you know, rich first-world economy that a communist totalitarian system wishes to subsume under its yoke and not only that but we've seen it do it before it did it to hong kong and it has been doing it to hong kong now pretty much for five years straight systematically choking off hong kong's independence its financial independence its political independence its speech independence and Hong Kong has effectively become or is on the verge of becoming a vassal of China under the same rules and regulations as the overall Chinese population. So we know how Taiwan goes if they invade and take over. And we know that we are extremely dependent. I keep talking about the problem of our supply chains and things like that. We are extremely dependent on Taiwan for one of the most important items in our post-industrial economy, you know, microchips. We are incredibly dependent on Taiwan's harvesting of rare and make and, and the manufacture of silicon chips and all of that. And 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 you know, the disruptions that would be attendant if there were actually a conflict are we can't even process what that might do to the world economy. 
And yet, Matt, from some of our friends on, on the right, we get this, I don't just, I don't understand the logic. It just doesn't make sense. We're just saying, focus on China. We don't have unlimited resources. We're running out of ammunition. We can't replenish our stocks. And I don't understand what you're saying. Why does Ukraine matter? And then we say it, and then they're like, why does Ukraine matter? And then you say it again, and they're like, why does you... It's not like they engage us in the argument. They ignore the argument. The the argument is so straightforward. Um, It's almost comical. Russia is China's hand-picked, nurtured, special... As, as the agreement between Xi and Putin describe it, no limits ally. Uh, China has a big investment in Russia uh, and in Russia's victory here. How could it not damage China to, to turn its greatest ally into a loser here? Um, it is so straightforward. It is w- without, do, and, and we would be doing so without American uh, uh, troops on the ground there. Yeah, the, um, uh, the Russia is plainly China's junior partner. In fact, it's really striking to just look at some of the images coming out of the summit. Xi Jinping towers over Putin. And everything I know about Putin suggests that he would not like that photo. And yet they're all smiles. Also, um, I was recently talking to someone who had, who'd been in rooms with Xi and they said that Xi Jinping never smiled when dealing with Americans. He was completely impassive or frowning. And yet, if you look at him greeting Putin, he's all smiles. Okay. So we know where his sentiments are and what he thinks the stakes are of this conflict. The, the, what we hear from our, our friends, John, is that it's an either or question. You either spend all, all of your resources defending Ukraine. Or you cut Ukraine off and flood the uh, the Pacific, the Indo-Pacific region, and Taiwan with the armaments to defend itself. And what we're saying is, it's not an either-or question; it's a both-and question. And if the fact is that our hard power capabilities are running up against a, a, a wall here, the answer is we need to spend a lot more money. We need to invoke the Defense Production Act. We, you know, that's that's it's not. But because if you cut off, I mean, the other thing that the they tend to forget is. They what the what Josh Hawley is saying is yeah where America should cut off Ukraine and basically leave Ukraine to Europe. There are a few things wrong with that. The first is if America cuts off Ukraine, what do you think the Europeans are going to do? You think they're all of a sudden going to say, "Oh well, I guess that means we only need the fight is that important, right?" No. If the global democratic power says Ukraine isn't worth it, what what makes Anyone think that the UK or Germany or France is going to pick up the slack? Now, the polls might, but but that leads to my second point, which is America is so rich. We are so rich that even a fraction of our GDP, even a fraction of our defense budget, which is what our military aid to, is overwhelmingly beneficial to Ukraine and, and outmatches the European contributions. So if we cut off... The Europeans actually can't pick up the slack because their economies aren't strong enough. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. And to the extent that um, Biden isn't doing all that he needs to, well, that's not an indictment of 
the commentary podcast, that's an indictment of Biden. And in fact, I think to quote Ambassador Haley again, I think she I think she's pretty good in the piece by saying by focusing on Biden here. You know, she says, Mr. Biden says the U.S. stands with Ukraine, but he has consistently let Russia seize the initiative. He encouraged the invasion. He has failed to send Kiev the support it needs when it needs it. He has even given Ukraine money without accountability. Okay, so that's, again, that she, that's conservative politics that she's doing, but that's fine. Ukrainians clearly have the will to win, but Mr. Biden has given Ukraine only enough to slow the Russian advance, not to repel it. Exactly. That's where I think the the traditional conservative internationalist criticism should be. And it is the criticism advanced by many Republican representatives in Congress, it's, uh, but it's not where the kind of conservative intellectual debate such as it is, uh, is located today. You know, I mean, just to, I, I don't want to like make this a sort of solipsistic argument between the SOCONs and us, but, uh, and I, I, uh, when DeSantis said, you know, the globalists, uh, you know, first they want to play footsie with China, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the economy, and now they want to fight back against China. And this is this is what this was the ultimate straw man argument because uh, Matt was not there yet, but in 1996, seven. Uh, 1997, in the uh, pretty much in the second year of the full second year of the existence of the Weekly Standard, I edited and uh, put together a special issue called China the Threat that was a systematic attack on the American onrush toward investing and making friends and playing footsie with China. Systematic, talking about rule of law, talking about the Lao guy uh, gulag, talking about, uh, you know, the history of Chinese uh, intellectual property theft, all the issues that you have heard about over the last eight years since Xi began to totalitarianize China or re-totalitarianize China. We talked about 20 years earlier. And one of the main issues and main issue at the Weekly Standard, main issue at commentary and all of that was that we were going to face a terrible crisis in our defense posture because we were not spending enough on defense that we had essentially given up what was called the two-front strategy of the Cold War in which we had a sufficient amount of military equipment, materiel, and personnel to be back in the same position that we were uh, at the end of World War II, where we where we were capable of fighting a war in the Pacific and a war in Europe at the same time. Interesting, right? <laughs> that we're here yeah, well, in 2023. And of course, the flip side of those debates that the Weekly Standard was having in the 1990s was that the realists were against the neoconservative position. Yeah. The realists were yeah. for engagement with China. And now the realists are saying, don't uh, cut off Ukraine, focus only on China. Have you noticed that the realists are always against wherever America is currently fighting? Wherever yeah. America is, and we're, of course, we're not currently fighting in Ukraine. We're helping the Ukrainians at no risk to American lives. Right. But, but wherever America is engaged, the realists say that's a distraction. It's like it's like you know, yeah. if we move to Taiwan, I'm sure if if we actually got into a situation where we were uh, committing American resources or aid or God help us troops to the defense of Taiwan, the realist chorus would say it's too late. 
China has already won. That's a distraction. Wherever we move on the map, the realists say, no, 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 we can't do that. That's a distraction from the real from the real issue. Abe, you know, in, in Hawley's speech, uh, he begins it in a very peculiar way for this argument. Because, of course, what he's saying is we should cut off Ukraine and spend and turn our, all of our attention to China. But he says, if China moves on Taiwan, they win. They win. There's no, we can't stop them if they want to take over Taiwan. Therefore, we have to prevent them from trying to take over Taiwan in the first place. Well, welcome to the argument, Josh Hawley, because if what you're saying is we cut off Ukraine and then we, I don't know what we're supposed to, we put a lot of ships that aren't deployed near Ukraine in the South China Sea. Where are we, what is this blood and treasure that we're supposed to commit to the Asian Pacific theater? And by the way, it sounds precisely like what Joe Biden said before Putin invaded Ukraine. If he wants, if he wants to take it, he can take. If 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 he's if he's if they if he's set to to you know invade Ukraine, he 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 has the power to succeed. He can do it. Yeah, uh, uh, Biden said. Um, it's it's foremost telegraphing to China that that uh, we surrender now. Yeah. So yeah. the only argument. So I accept the contention. That China deciding to move on Taiwan creates a crisis on this planet, the likes of which we really haven't seen since since the Second World War. I mean, creates a direct confrontational issue between the United States and Taiwan that we will have will be very hard done to try to figure out how to reverse it or to fight it. Not getting out of it without boots on the ground there, let me tell you, if you actually decide you want to reverse it. Um, and so the strategy of beating Russia in Ukraine using only American money and equipment is the most efficient possible solution to the problem that Hawley and all these people are trying to get people to focus on Except I think Matt's alluding to the truth here, which is that it's all a dodge. This is all a dodge for a kind of isolationism that we can pull. We can go back like a turtle, pull our heads in, be ostriches, put our heads in the sand. And we're like, we're just going to have, I mean, what are we going to say? We're, we have a nuclear bomb aimed at Beijing if you go into Taiwan. Yeah, well, or, I mean, we're we're going to say we're f- content with China being the guarantor of global security. I mean, that's eventually what you back into. I mean, this was always the concern during the Cold War. I mean, as your as your father was writing about Finlandization and and the the present danger, America can at the end of the day, if we want, just go back to our borders and say the only vital interest in America is the protection of our. Uh, our territory, which, by the way, is pretty much invulnerable to a, a ground invasion. I mean, not to a nuclear attack. But if that's if that's what we want to do, what that means is in the in during the Cold War context, it meant that basically the Soviet Union, global com- world communism, would determine the rules of the game for everyone else and us in a way, because there's nothing that won't affect us in the end. 
And if you do that now, then that means that China is going to be the guarantor of global security, which, which, and I think this is why it's so important to understand what she is saying, which is what he clearly wants. I mean, that's unusual for a Chinese. We've never had a Chinese communist leader like this, right? One, we've never had a Chinese communist leader with more than two terms. He just got his third term. He will be the emperor for as long as he lives. And two, we've never had a Chinese communist leader say, well, you know what? Now we're going to be in charge. The uh, Mao was so psychopathic <laughs> and he was inward looking. All of Mao's energies were directed toward the revolution at home, right? And then Mao's successors uh, from uh, Deng to, to Hu were, uh, well, we want peaceful rise. Uh, Deng Xiaoping said it to get rich is glorious. So we're just going to focus on building our own strength, getting richer, and we're going to slowly in integrate ourselves into the world economic system. And now you have Xi Jinping, and he's like, uh, I'm not as crazy as Mao. And actually, to ri get rich is not glorious. If you read Xi Jinping's thought, it's not about getting rich. He's, he's basically erasing Deng's legacy. And he's saying that uh, what, now it's about uh, securing the revolution at home and expanding our horizons abroad. And that's what and makes think, it so unprecedented. I, I, I think the this this question of the eye off the ball in Ukraine question is coming to a head right now. And uh, Xi is making our argument for us. Um, and I, I think um, the, the debate is sort of being decided by his actions, by what's going on uh, uh, in Moscow right now, in our favor. I think you see that uh, the Japanese Prime Minister Kishida has now gone to uh, uh, Ukraine to, to meet with Zelensky. The broader battle lines here are becoming clearer and, and more stark. And I think it's going to be much harder to argue after this trip that um, the fight against China is not um, that 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 the that the immediate battlefield is not in in ukraine at the moment I, I agree with that except to the extent that the argument is disingenuous and it, it it is impervious to facts or changing facts on the ground uh the desperate effort by a lot of people on the right to believe that for example the ukrainian military strategy over the past three or four months has been a disastrous error um without any evidence to show that it's been a disastrous error i mean so the war has now focused on this you know siege of bakhmut well you know it's horrible what ukraine is is going through they've made a calculated decision that humiliating russia with its inability to take control of you know queens when they're you know <clears throat> in Nassau County trying to march through Queens is worth the risk and 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 the desire to believe that they are failing I think plays a huge role here because they're just trying to win this argument which I think ultimately is a it's all a cover for a certain type of isolationism when I, it all comes I, down I, to it I totally agree that that's the case in their camp in the in the in the realist natcom isolate whatever we want to call them camp. I mean in the broader sort of 
the, the way the public is seeing this play out. Well, yeah. the public, the public remains supportive. <laughs> the public remains supportive of our efforts in, in, in Ukraine as they should. I mean, I know Republicans are, are, you know, think we're doing too much, but of course they don't know what we're doing to be honest. I mean, my guess is it's one of those things where if you actually polled Republicans and said, what, what are we doing there? They probably think we have, we have men on the ground. I bet you they think we have men on the ground or that we're flying plane or we're doing stuff like people don't focus on it the way we focus on it. They probably don't know what it is. And they think that we're getting ourselves in over our heads and we're getting in too deep and don't actually know that we're not really in it that much at all. And in, in some, you know, in, in, in the largest battlefield sense, we're not in it that much at all. Yeah. I just want to, I think maybe, um, we can close with uh, Zelensky's words. He gave an interview to the Atlantic um, that was excerpted uh, just uh, today. I don't really like the framing of the uh, piece. You know, they say that this was Zelensky's response to uh, DeSantis. I think that personalizes it. Zelensky was um, did not mention anyone when he was asked this question of how you would respond to somebody saying it's not a vital interest of America or it's just a territorial dispute. But uh, Zelensky, I just I think it's worth quoting. He said, he, he says, if we will not have enough weapons, that means we will be weak. If we will be weak, they, Russia, will occupy us. If they occupy us, they will be on the borders of Moldova and they will occupy Moldova. When they have occupied Moldova, they will travel through Belarus and they will occupy Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. That's three Baltic countries, which are members of NATO. They will occupy them. Of course, the Balts are brave people and they will fight, but they are small and they don't have nuclear weapons. So they will be attacked by Russians because that is the policy of Russia to take back all the countries which have been previously part of the Soviet Union. When they occupy NATO countries and also be on the borders of Poland and maybe fight with Poland, the question is, will you, America, send all your soldiers with weapons, all your pilots, all your ships? Will you send tanks and armored vehicles with our, your young people? Will you do it? Because if you will not do it, you'll have no NATO. And then he also raised a very interesting thing, which he... Zelensky said, you know, Russia is using these Iranian-made Shahed drones in these basically mass attacks against Ukrainian infrastructure and the civilian population. And Zelensky pointed out the Iranians can use these same drones against Israel. Um, so when they try to occupy Israel, talking about Iran, and there's, of course, a question of whether that, you know, that's even a feasible scenario. But nonetheless, Zelensky says, will the United States help Israel? That is the question, very pr pragmatic. And I think that's absolutely right. And it, it and of course, Zelensky is focused on Europe and the Middle East. There's also the China piece. If you don't stop Russia now, then China will be that much more incentivized to move. So laying out the stakes very clearly, as Zelensky is very good at doing, is important. And I commend Nikki Haley for doing the same in the Wall Street Journal today. Okay. Well, we will uh, we will be back tomorrow. So for Abe and Matt and the absent Christine, I am John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>